in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of two girls. So there have been a flurry of smaller rulings related to the Delphi case in the recent weeks. Frankly, none of them on their own struck us uh, as as worthy of a separate episode. But what we're going to do, since there kind of been a number of them, and some people have actually asked us questions about them, we're going to sort of package them all together in this episode, run through some of the updates and what they mean for the media's coverage of the case, uh, the defense, the prosecution, and all of us who are following along, essentially looking at this case with interest. So we'll run through a couple of those today in this episode and kind of give you a glimpse at what all of this means. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. 
We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is The Delphi Murders, February 2023 Filings. Why don't we start with something that is not directly related to the Delphi case, but has the potential to influence how most people will actually receive news and information about the future court case against Richard Allen? Yes, this is an order filed with the Indiana Supreme Court on February 15th, 2023, and I think when we start talking about it, it might sound like a bit of inside baseball, but it really, really actually matters for how everybody listening will actually be able to potentially view the case, view the trial, actually. Right now, of course, uh, the only people allowed into the courtroom are the people who are actually there standing in line. And so that means most of you who are listening to me now What you hear and learn about what goes on in the court proceedings involving Richard Allen is filtered through other people. You get my opinion, you get Anya's opinion, you get other reporters' opinions, but you don't get to see it for yourself. And now that may change. Yes. Basically, previously, cameras were effectively banned from the courtroom. And by cameras, I mean television cameras broadcasting the trial. And basically, starting on May 1st, 2023, those strict rules will slacken, and it will essentially be, in certain cases, allowed for uh, television news stations to broadcast from a courthouse. And now, there's some caveats. Now, I, I think when you, when you say this, the first question that comes to mind is, does this mean that people will definitely be able to watch court proceedings involving Richard Allen on television or via the internet? The answer is not necessarily. Basically, here's a direct quote from this new order. The judge has discretion to approve or deny a request for broadcast of a court proceeding. If the judge allows broadcast, The judge has discretion to interrupt or stop the coverage if he or she deems the interruption or stoppage appropriate. The judge also has discretion to limit or terminate broadcast by a news media organization at any time during the proceeding. So this does give the judges a lot of leeway. If a judge is thinking this is not an appropriate situation to allow broadcast, then not only can they basically not have cameras in the courtroom, but they can also basically put a stop to cameras being in the courtroom if they were previously authorized. So 
we don't know how exactly Judge Fran Gull is going to rule in this situation. There is a huge amount of media interest in this case. That much is very clear. This is a highly followed case. The public has an interest and, frankly, a right to know what's going on. At the same time, it's a very sensitive case. These are murders of two young girls. Emotions are running high. Um, I will note one thing that does kind of shed a bit of light on the situation. Judge Frangel was actually one of the judges in the pilot program where they were exploring allowing cameras in the courtroom. So through her work with Allen Superior Court, she's actually already gone through this pilot. And that's interesting. I wonder, you know, if, I mean, I just speculating, but like the fact that she's gone through that, you know, it, it kind of gives me some idea that maybe cameras will be allowed come May, but it doesn't necessarily mean that because she could always decide that actually this is too sensitive and allowing cameras would just be more problematic than it's worth. So it kind of it's up in the air, but it's a distinct possibility that you will actually be able to view the Delphi trial, you know, from home, essentially. And that'll give you more access by you. I mean, the listener, not you, Kevin. <laughs> We're going to be there in person, but you will be uh, able to kind of watch this historic and very important crime be adjudicated, essentially. And I think it's really worth stressing and repeating what you said before about how the judge has the authority and the discretion to allow it, to stop it, and then to start it up again if he or she chooses. And so you, it's easy to imagine cases where a judge might say, okay, this part may be okay to be put on television, but I'm just pulling a hypothetical out of the air. If it's a rape trial, maybe you don't want to have the victim in the case having her image broadcast on television. And in this case, uh, there's been a lot of concern cited by the prosecutor and law enforcement indicating that some of the witnesses in this case were juveniles at the time of the crime. And so it might be possible that their testimony might not be televised. Or that none of it will be. I mean, we have to always, you know, the possibility that they will just say no. And I'm actually really glad you mentioned that certain cases would be more sensitive. I will read a part of the ruling that kind of gets at that. All civil and criminal proceedings are eligible for broadcast by the news media, except for proceedings closed to the public, either by state statute or Indiana Supreme Court rules. No broadcast of a court proceeding is allowed without authorization from the judge. All authorized broadcast coverage of a court proceeding must comply with the Indiana Rules of Professional Conduct and the Indiana Code of Judicial Conduct. The judge must prohibit media broadcasts of minors, juvenile delinquency, and child in need of services matters. Victims of violent offenses, sex offenses, and domestic abuse, jurors, attorney-client communications, bench conferences, and materials on council tables and judicial bench. The judge has discretion to deny broadcast coverage of a witness for safety concerns. So this is outlining areas where it's a no-go. Cameras will not be allowed to just do whatever, you know, the news media will not be allowed to do whatever they want. Uh, there's going to be controlled situations, and there's certainly going to be a sensitivity towards certain cases Without you know, basically, we do not want these being filmed. So uh, I don't think this indicates that. I think this indicates that they're you know they're thinking pretty uh, heavily about what they're going to do and what would be appropriate and what would not be appropriate. And it's really kind of just letting the judge 
make a decision that is informed and and possibly right for the case about what exactly is allowed. And I think that's responsible because there are obviously situations where you wouldn't want something broadcast, frankly. One thing that kind of gives me a little pause, I don't know, I've, I've, I, I'll be curious what you think about this, Kevin. News media is defined as persons employed by or representing a newspaper, periodical, press association, radio station, television station, or wire service and covered by Indiana Code 344641. Representatives of news media organizations may be required to wear identification. The judge has discretion to determine who is admitted as news media and under what conditions. Members of the general public are prohibited from broadcasting, recording, or photographing court proceedings. Well, I do hope that if they do this, that we are considered news media. Did not see uh, podcast broadcasts on there, but, um, you know. Or YouTube. Uh yeah, and there's. I I know, for instance, that uh, in most, if not all, of the court proceedings we've been to, both in the Richard Allen case and in the Kagan Klein case, there have also been people who are YouTubers present. That's correct. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how they go about trying to basically fairly determine who is a journalist under the eyes of the law. I would like to think that we would be defined as journalists in the eyes of the law because we've broken substantive news on this case. But from, I mean, from a purely technical standpoint, we do not represent a traditional media outlet. Well, I would argue that we represent the murder sheet. Yeah, we represent the murder sheet. I mean, and as I said, we've we've broken yeah. substantive news, but it's just um, that kind of gets into a tricky area. I think where like the judge has to be like, okay, is this, is this YouTuber better than that YouTuber? Is this who you know who's what now you're thinking about it like a lawyer does yes. lawyers always like trying to define things yes. and figure things out i need to be in control it makes me feel safer <laughs> no I, I i don't know it'll be interesting it will be interesting mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on the murder sheet but sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper that's why we love the free to download hidden object game june's journey This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, it's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. 
Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, why don't we move on to some of the filings that are directly related to this case? Of course, all of us were looking forward and expecting last week for there to be the bond hearing in the Richard Allen case. That was scheduled for February 17th. 2023. And what made this especially interesting is at the bond hearing, the state would be obligated to provide more information about why exactly Richard Allen needs to be kept in jail. In other words, they'd have to go beyond the evidence that's in the probable cause affidavit and offer more reasons to explain why they think he is the guilty party. This means we would have gotten more new evidence beyond what we know now. Now, that was delayed, and it was delayed because the defense said, we need time to prepare. There's been so much discovery given to us. There's been so much information given to us from the prosecution about this case. We haven't really had an opportunity to go through it all, and we need to be prepared for this hearing. And so that was pushed back until June. And uh, I just want to also highlight the fact that originally the bond hearing was scheduled for February 17th. The bond hearing is now scheduled for June 15th through the 16th, starting at 8.30 in the morning. So the fact that they are allowing so much time for this hearing is really another indication of the amount of information we may get and the amount of time it may take. I would expect at this hearing that one of the investigators in the Delphi case will be offering testimony. And I'll note that, you know, because maybe people think, well, maybe they're just being extra safe. In no other hearing that we've gone to or has happened in this case, have they ever blocked out two days? That's a first. Usually they block out an hour or two. Yeah, so we think that's highly indicative. And we will be looking forward to that June hearing to basically get a better sense of the case against Richard Allen. And the fact that the defense attorneys say we want to be very well prepared for this, that also is an indication that they may be prepared to challenge some of the evidence put forth by the state at this hearing. Perhaps, but they'd scarcely say, uh, well, we're just going to, we're going to wing it. (laughs) We're not going to (laughs) do our homework. I mean, I also wonder if this is also a bit of a preview, so to speak, of the upcoming trial. Like if we'll get to see some of the styles of the different attorneys on display about how they might approach the actual trial, essentially, because it kind of gives everybody an opportunity to see almost like a miniature briefer version of, you know, what could be a very long drawn out process in the future. And also, uh, it won't just be a bond hearing that day. They will also be trying to figure out when exactly the trial will be held at that time. Yes. Initially, it was uh, scheduled for March. 
Now, what ended up happening was basically it seemed that in the in the previous hearing that we went to, I do recall prosecutor Nick McClelland and Judge Fran Gull kind of shared a laugh at one point at the idea that there would be a March trial because they were basically like, there's no way. I think the word that they both used was ambitious. And defense at that time deferred on how they felt about the situation, but in more recent filings, they've, you know, when they asked for more time for the bond hearing, they also indicated we want to push back the trial too. We we don't, there's not been time. And I think a lot of people have been confused by some of that because there's a sense that like, oh, we've been waiting for six years for answers. Why does it keep getting pushed back? Is that abnormal? Does that mean there's something wrong with either the defense or the prosecution? And we would just say that this is a very, 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 substantive investigation with lots of different angles and both prosecution and defense have limited time and resources. They're small teams that are going to have to be going through all this. So in our view, both sides should be taking all the time they need to really bring their best work to the table. Even under the best of circumstances, even under the easiest of circumstances, the court system takes time because when you have a, a trial or when you have something move through the process, it's important that both sides are fully prepared at each step of the way. Both sides get a chance to weigh in on everything and get all the information they need. All of this takes time. What do you make, though, Kevin, of the fact that Richard Allen is going to be spending all those many more months in, in as an incarcerated person, essentially, um, you know, some would argue that you tend to see the bond hearing happen earlier because the defense, if they can, wants to free them from lockup, essentially free the client, essentially, um, and and get them out um, so they can be, you know, with their family before a trial or, you know, preparing or what. Yeah, it's very unusual if this bond hearing is held as it is now scheduled to be in June. That would be nearly eight months after the arrest. And that's very unusual for there to be such a lengthy delay. And I, rem- I imagine there's some, these are, these defense attorneys are very experienced. I imagine that there is some strategic reason or it's like, you know, uh, there must be some, st- I, I would imagine there is some strategic reason behind that because you would think if they, I don't know, it's like, do they expect to just lose it, but they hope to use it as like an opportunity to start putting their case together and that's why they're they've requested a delay i don't know that's possible you know it, it's yeah or or is it do they feel maybe that the preparation will allow them time to actually win it or have enough material to possibly get him released i, I personally feel like it, it's such a high profile heinous crime it's going to be interesting. I kind of don't see Alan getting out, but anything's possible. And we don't know what both sides are going to bring to the table. It's also worth noting that June is four months away. And four months is a long time. As we sit here in mid-February, it's not even been four months since Richard Allen was arrested. Uh, it's entirely possible that the defense plans to file other motions between now and June, which might change the way the case appears in June. Another filing that came out the other day was the prosecution had earlier asked for a protective order 
basically asking that the defense be required to keep the information about the case, which the prosecution hands over to them. The defense has to keep that strictly confidential, basically. Judge Gold granted that. Yeah, that's not terribly surprising. I think you commented at one point to me today before we started recording. There's a lot of secrecy in this case. But at the same time, you kind of expect in this situation that there would be, you know, uh, a level of discretion with with the materials around discovery, given their sensitive nature. And it's no surprise that Judge Gull granted this because I think she's established herself by her rulings as a judge who does not want this to be a media battle between both sides. She does not want sneaky leaks to the press and, you know, people getting blindsided or people fighting it out in the press. That's why there's a gag order. That's why there's this ruling. They, they want, they want the fighting. She wants the fighting, I think, to be done in the court, not outside. So the final ruling involving uh, the Delphi case from Judge Gull the other day was the media groups had asked for a specific document to be released, a document that had previously been kept private. And that was a document that was actually filed all the way back in late October, uh, about the time Allen was arrested. And this was a document in which the state was supposed to explain why they felt it was so important to keep the probable cause affidavit private. We'll all remember that when Allen's arrest was announced, they did not reveal the probable cause affidavit at that time. They said it was very important that it be kept private. And they were supposed to have prepared a document explaining that to submit to the court in order for the court to sign off and approve it. And so the media wanted to see this document. And Judge Gold said, basically, sure, you have the right to see that. And it was released. Can you go over the main points about what McClellan basically argued in the document? What's interesting about this document is how uninteresting it is. By that, I mean that when you request something under the law, there's usually be something that says, well, you can have this if this condition is met. And then the attorney is supposed to say, well, that condition is met and here's why. Prosecutor McClellan did not do that in this document. Basically, he compiled a list of what the conditions are to be met in order to justify keeping it private without explaining why this situation fulfilled those conditions. So, like, can I put it in really stupid terms? Yes. So is it kind of like if you told your kid, listen, if you get all A's on your report card, we can go to Ritter's to get frozen custard. And they came back without a report card, but basically saying, you know, if I got an A in history, English, and math, we could go to Ritter's. And you're like, what the heck is this? What kind of mind games are you playing, kid? Yeah, and <laughs> I'll, I'll read from this document. Basically, in order to justify keeping something confidential, you have to meet certain standards and show certain things. So, in support of said request, the state shows the following. One, that the public interest would be secured by the sealing of the record. Two, that dissemination of the information contained in the record would create a serious and imminent danger to the public interest. So, it says it shows those things, 
but then it doesn't show those things. It really doesn't seem to say anything. It's it's just very boilerplate. I don't even know why they would do this if they didn't have some, you know, statement saying, you know, even vaguely, here's why we can't do anything. Yeah, if you're saying dissemination of the information in this document will be harmful and create danger, then you need to explain why. Why would spreading this information create harm and danger? I guess I, what I concerns me is why a prosecutor is picking a fight that seems to be a long shot for them to win and then not really putting any effort into it. That's a good point. And also it's interesting. They say the dissemination of the information in the, in the probable cause will create serious and imminent danger to the public interest. The PCA has been released. I'm not aware of the release of the PCA causing any harm or danger to the public interest. No, it just seems bizarre to make a whole big deal about it, then lose. And then, like, you know, it's kind of like, well, what was that all about? The only thing I can think of that would make it justified, in my opinion, is if it was a stalling tactic. If there was, like, something where they were like, we need another week. I don't know what that would be. But that's the only strategic advantage I could see where it's basically... We don't expect to win. We just want to stall this for like a week or some very limited amount of time. And then it's inevitably going to get out there. But basically, our goal will be met as long as we delay. And uh, I guess my thinking about it is I didn't understand why they just didn't release something redacted in the first place. Because, you know, based on how things proceed in Indiana, that would have been expected. And it would have gotten people off their back a lot sooner about this and caused a lot less confusion. I just really feel like sometimes there's a lack of understanding about like how things will appear to the public or the media when, you know, maybe there should be a little bit more thought put into that. But then again, I don't know. It's possible that behind the scenes, there was a very concrete reason for doing this that ended up benefiting the prosecution that we're not aware of. So I'm not going to say it was definitely something, you know, that was a bad idea. I'm just saying that like on, on its face, it's really hard to understand why this happened. Now, we've been talking about, of course, that those initial period of when Allen was arrested and something else involving that sphere of time has also been has also become newly relevant lately. Can you discuss that? So this is a complaint with the Indiana Public Access Counselor against the Indiana State Police. That was filed by Ron Wilkins, a reporter for the Lafayette Journal and Courier, which is a newspaper up there. As some background, the Access to Public Records Act basically dictates that in Indiana, anybody is, quote, entitled to full and complete information regarding the affairs of government and the official acts of those who represent them as public officials and employees. And ISP, of course, is a public agency and then is subject to APRA. And without some sort of exception coming in, therefore, people have the right to ask for their public records. Now, here's what APRA says regarding reporting a crime. APRA requires law enforcement agencies to create, maintain, and disclose a daily log or record that lists suspected crimes, accidents, or complaints that includes the following information. One, the time, substance, and location of all complaints or requests for assistance received by the agency. Two, the time and nature of the agency's response to all complaints or requests for assistance. Three, if the incident involves an alleged crime or infraction. A, the time, date, and location of occurrence. 
B, the name and age of any victim, unless the victim is a victim of a crime under IC 3542-4 or IC 3542-35. C, the factual circumstances surrounding the incident, and D, a general description of any injuries, property, or weapons involved. Additionally, if a person is arrested and jailed, the following must be logged. One, information that identifies the person, including the person's name, age, and address. Two, information concerning the reason for the person being placed in the jail or lockup, including the name of the person on whose order the person is being held. Three, the time and date that the person was received and the time and date of the person's discharge or transfer. Four, the amount of the person's bail or bond, if it has been fixed. So that's giving you a sense of what what the police, the minimum the police owes the public. So this actually dates back to like the initial period around Allen's arrest. And I'll read from public access counselor Luke Britt's opinion on this matter to give you a sense of the background. This case involves a dispute about whether the Indiana State Police, or ISP, violated the Access to Public Records Act, APRA, by failing to disclose records requested by a member of the press. On October 28, 2022, Ron Wilkins, the complainant, a reporter for the Lafayette Journal and Courier, submitted a public records request, both written and telephonically, to ISP for information regarding the arrest of a suspect in a murder case in Carroll County. The arrest occurred on October 26, 2022. Wilkins was seeking information mandated to be disclosed pursuant to the Indiana Code Section 4, Section 5.14.35. His request was denied on October 29th. Wilkins contends he was entitled to the information no more than 24 hours after the arrest. He filed his complaint on November 8th. ISP confirmed that Wilkins was denied the information until October 31st, 2022, when ISP held a press conference and issued a press release. ISP argues it was under the discretion of the county prosecutor and that any court records were sealed. It further argues that APRA only requires the creation of the records in question within 24 hours, but not their release. Okay, so yeah, so now we have um, we have Mr. Britt's ruling on basically who is in the right here. Did did ISP act improperly by not releasing this information? There was a lot of weird secrecy about this whole thing when this was happening. It was kind of it was an interesting situation, but we were vaguely aware that this was happening. We knew there had been an arrest. We couldn't get any information from anybody. We did not we did not officially file anything. So, um, but obviously the journal and courier did got, got sort of smacked down and now we're basically hearing from Britt about what he thinks. Yeah. After they got smacked down, they've, they've then filed this complaint with uh, public access counselor, Luke Britt. And of course we're very familiar with this public access counselor process because of some experiences we've had related to the Burgershoff case. But I think it's worth refreshing people's memory about how this works. Basically, in Indiana, you have the right to request information and documents from a government agency. If that agency then refuses to give those to you, and when you believe they should give them to you, you can, if you wish, file a complaint with Indiana's public access counselor. And then the public access counselor will study the relevant facts and issue what's known as an advisory opinion. Uh, And they're called advisory opinions because they don't have the force of law. In other words, if the public, if an agency doesn't give you documents and the public access counselor says, well, they should have, 
that doesn't mean they're then obligated to do that. <laughs> That's fun, right? Very effective system. Also, I want to note that in Indiana, we have, um, uh, how do I put this? Some, you know, basically the rule is that if a agency claims that files are investigative in nature, that's a that's a huge amount of leeway that they get to then deny people requests. So there's it, the 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 way the system is set up in the state is 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 a mess, frankly, and it's it's completely toothless. And I'm just being yes. very blunt here because this is how I feel about it. Fair enough. And so basically, this opinion, in terms of practical effects, it's it doesn't have much effect because. They're saying they should have released this information that has subsequently been released. And if it hadn't been released, this opinion wouldn't make the state police release it. But with that said, I think it is very important and very worthwhile that someone in the Indiana government has gone on the record to say that what happened was not okay. Yeah, this is interesting. Britt actually ruled against ISP. He ruled in favor of the Journal and Courier. I think we were both a little surprised by that because in our dealings with the Indiana Public Access Office, they, we kind of have felt that, like, the, to a certain degree, it rubber stamps the authorities. You know, like, go take it up with a, with a judge, basically. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. At The Murder Sheet, we're all about true crime podcasts, but we also adore audiobooks that immerse us in mysteries of both the fictional and non-fictional varieties. So you can imagine that we love Audible. With an Audible subscription, you can enter in an incredible library of audiobooks. We are talking about thousands of titles. Audible also has thousands of podcasts from all sorts of genres, including yours truly's, not to mention all sorts of other audio experiences. Audible members can download or stream included titles at any time, and the Audible app lets you listen on the go. I love listening to audiobooks when I'm doing chores around the house. One novel I'm looking forward to listening to is A Wicked Snow by Greg Olson. It's all about a young crime scene investigator haunted by her mother's mysterious murder. We talked to Greg on the show a while back, and I cannot wait to check that out. I love spine-tingling thrillers and mysteries, and I can tell that this one is going to be spooky in the best possible way. Audible brings such atmosphere to the listening experience. Audio is such a wonderful way to lose yourself in a story. Now is a wonderful time to become an Audible member. Murder Sheet listeners are getting a special deal. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash msheet or text msheet to 500 500. 
That's audible.com slash msheet or text msheet to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. But in this case, they he ruled against him. I think he, I think, uh, he makes a, an interesting case, and I will read from it. Okay. Based on the foregoing, it is the opinion of this office that the daily log information required by the Access to Public Records Act should have been made available on demand no later than 24 hours after the suspect's arrest. So he's ruling in favor of the Journal and Courier. And I think there's some interesting details in this uh, ruling and that I will kind of pick up, pick up on in a moment that kind of give us some more color about maybe some of the behind the scenes inner workings of this whole situation in that kind of hectic week or so around the arrest where you had, I mean, it was, we were in Delphi shortly after we heard about an arrest being made. You had other reporters who had heard we're all running around. I mean, we, I mean, I remember we, we showed up at the jail, the Carroll County jail at one point asked for some help. They basically were like, you know, get out of here in a nicer way than that. But we went to the courthouse. We went to the courthouse. They, they weren't talking to us. And, like, I didn't blame any of the employees because, I mean, they were doing what they were told to do. But the the thing was, I mean, like, we got in the jail, we left. Then they weren't even letting other reporters go in. So, like, this whole place went into lockdown mode. And so I've always been curious about, like, what exactly was that all about? And we get some kind of interesting information. Here's one thing that I picked up on. ISP also cites the local prosecutor and presiding judge as factors in the delay. While that matter is being addressed in other opinions, it is notable that APRA's daily log requirements for law enforcement is not a judicial record. As a result, the daily log is mutually exclusive from any court record over which judicial officers have purview. The daily log statute applies to law enforcement agencies in the executive branch of government. It is an affirmative duty that cannot be bargained, pled, or motioned away through a court procedure. So you kind of have an interesting situation where the police are sort of saying, well, the judge and the prosecutor, Nick McClelland, and at the time, Judge Ben Diener, didn't want us to release anything. And what Luke Britt is saying here is basically like, that doesn't matter. It's not their call. It's your call as the police. It's your call. So that's kind of interesting, pushing back on that, but also giving you an indication of what may have been happening behind the scenes. You know, if police are being told, like, don't do it. It's interesting. Now... Here's another thing that really was like, wow, okay. This office remains convinced that much of the consternation regarding public access in this case is much of the government's own doing. Simply put, the law enforcement agencies at play could have anticipated an onslaught of requests for the arrest information and prepared accordingly instead of keeping the public in the dark for several days until they arranged a more convenient method of disseminating information. Yes, that's my opinion. What do you think? I agree. Yeah, that's well said. I'm I'm really pleased and gratified that someone in the government has gone on the record to say this was wrong. It should have been handled a lot better. When I was reading that for the first time, I was just like fire emojis in my in my head. I was just like, yes, that is completely correct. I still don't understand why there wasn't more preparation for dealing with the onslaught in a way that was keeping information private you know, redacting the witness names. I think most people we've talked to completely understand the need for that. But it sort of just felt like we all stumbled into this situation and there was no 
And that's why, you know, when people, I don't know, it just, the whole thing was seemed so rushed and confusing. It just seemed like it was, I don't understand why they put up such a fight with, you know, secrecy and then kind of, it just came to nothing. And it was like, what was the point of all of that? And that's why I was, you know, commenting earlier, maybe there was a strategy, but it's not one that's self, it's not one that's self-evident. I think Brit really summed it up in that paragraph in terms of the fallout from some of this. Um, and I, I will argue, I will just note that the ISP's argument against this was, quote, APRA's language specifically mandates the creation of a daily log within 24 hours, but not disclosure. And clearly, uh, <laughs> public access counselor Luke Britt did not find that argument. That doesn't really make any sense. Terribly compelling. <laughs> nope. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, this is why we do what we do, I think, in this case, too, because I, I think... You know, we, we, we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of behind the scenes work on this case. And I can say that I feel like the people working on this case care deeply about it. And in some cases, law enforcement wanting to keep things secret is for a good reason. And, you know, great in that case. But some of the secrecy around the opening of this case, I think kind of just maybe to a certain extent made people feel a little bit unconfident about the arrest and ask more questions. And I kind of feel like some of the secrecy with which this case has been handled over the years perpetuated a cycle of, you know, rampant speculation and then times where the case is barely being talked about at all. And I I feel like instead of what the ideal situation is that facts are being, you know, light is being shut on actual facts and people coming in and, and talking about that. And I just feel like some of the ways aspects of this have been handled kind of speaks to, you know, wanting to keep things secret that shouldn't be kept secret and fighting battles that aren't going to be won and are just going to make people wonder why are we trying to keep this secret now? So that's my opinion. Obviously that comes from a reporter. So (laughs) I'm, I'm going to always be more on the side of like shining a light on things, but uh, people can be free to disagree, but that's just my two cents. What about you, Kevin, as an attorney, the attorney's perspective? I, I think if anyone looks at uh, our, our record, especially with the Burger Chef case, we find it very disappointing and frustrating how certain agencies keep a tight lid on information that the public deserves to know. So I'm always in favor of releasing as much information as possible. Yes. And there could be circumstances that if we learn them would make us sympathetic to ISP's attempt to keep things out of the public eye. I, I can certainly envision that. But as it's been stated in, in this complaint and as it's been stated in, you know, Nick McClellan's filing asking for things to be kept secret you know, you're not really seeing a consistent narrative about, like, what's a good reason for this. And so with minus that, if we don't have that, then we have to lean towards public disclosure. But anyways, we'll keep an eye on any interesting filings that pop up in this case in the meantime. And certainly let us know if you have questions. If there's a bunch of smaller filings that maybe aren't necessarily worth their own episode, we can always kind of put them together and discuss them all in mass, I think, in the future. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. 
If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.